Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 33 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part case. The second instalment is available next week. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. Normawati Sanaga was startled when the phone rang. The voice on the other end of the line told her that they worked for the Greater Manchester Police. Trying to understand why on earth someone would be calling an Indonesian home from the other side of the world, she quickly thought of her son. He was studying in England. Normawati was told that one of her children had been severely beaten in an altercation that left him unconscious and hospitalised. She was certain he was robbed. As her mind began to wander contemplating the worst, Normawati was told besides the fact that her son was in hospital, he had also been arrested for a serious crime. The representative from the Greater Manchester Police Force would not expound on the details. 
Unsure of what exactly this meant, Norma Wati thought her son must have killed someone when he had been attacked. She rushed to his bedside. When she arrived at Manchester Royal Infirmary, Norma Wati's son was barely able to open his eyes as his face was so bruised. His body showed signs of a brutal altercation. It was suspected he had a bleed on the brain. In tears, Norma Wati held her son's hand, unable to cradle him in her arms. News of the attack would have been challenging to hear for any mother. She was angry as to how anyone could do this. But what came next defied belief. When she spoke with an Indonesian diplomat to get to the bottom of what exactly was going on, Norma Wati was told that not only was her son arrested on suspicion of rape, but there was evidence he had committed hundreds of sex crimes. Not in her wildest nightmares could Norma Wati comprehend that her son, Reynard Sanaga, was the most prolific rapist in British criminal history. One evening on the first day of June 2017, a young student went out drinking with friends at the factory nightclub in Manchester. After his mother had dropped him off, the 18-year-old was ecstatic, celebrating the end of his A-levels. Following a night of revelry, soon after midnight, the 18-year-old, who we will be referring to as Peter, to protect his identity, had become separated from his companions in the hot and sweaty nightclub. He stepped outside to get some air. Although he had consumed a few pints of lager and some spirit-based cocktails, feeling somewhat merry, the drinks had not gone to his head. Peter could still hear the words his mother uttered to him after he got out of the car. Stay together. He took a seat on some steps a short distance from the club. This was approximately 12.30am. As Peter tried to compose himself, the student noticed a slightly built man walking towards him. He looked young for a man in his mid-thirties. The stranger introduced himself as Ray. The pair began to discuss what they were studying. Peter explained that he just needed some air. He said he was trying to get in touch with his friends but couldn't get through. The softly spoken Good Samaritan suggested they go to his flat nearby where they could use a phone and get out of the cold. Accepting what he considered to be a kindly gesture as it was cold out, Peter pushed himself up off the ground. 
What happened next is somewhat of a blur. Ray, who stood five feet seven inches tall, escorted Peter to his flat a few doors down from the club. The pair were captured on CCTV walking to the block opposite, no more than a hundred yards. They entered the building Montana House on Princess Street and made their way up the stairs to the third floor. Now out of the cold, Ray offered Peter a drink, then another. The first was a red liquid. The second was translucent. After this second drink, Peter felt the room beginning to spin. Everything was a blur. He needed to contact his friends, but he could barely move. He reached for his phone, but a hand stopped him. Peter blacked out in the doorway of the bathroom. It was not until several hours later that Peter regained consciousness. He was lying on his stomach on top of a duvet, with both his jeans and underwear pulled down to the top of his knees. In unfamiliar surroundings, he could feel someone pressed on top of him. It was Ray, the man he had met earlier that morning. Still coming out of a fog of disorientation, Peter could see the man was holding a mobile phone in his hand. When the recording was later reviewed, the footage initially pictured Peter snoring loudly. Coming around and summing up what strength he had, Peter tried to get up. Realising Peter was now awake, the man jumped up and ran into another room momentarily, before returning fully dressed. Peter slowly pulled up his jeans, asking what on earth was going on. He was startled by the man screaming loudly in his face. Intruder! Help! Peter tried to tell him to calm down before he was headbutted forcefully on the nose. He then felt a set of teeth sink into the flesh of his shoulder, then his stomach, then his back. Startled by the pain but now ready to defend himself, the athletic student who is six feet tall and weighs 13 stone lashed out with his fists. Peter easily overpowered the man trying to attack him, throwing him to the ground. Unsteady on his feet, Peter, a keen rugby player, then tried to make for the door before he felt the man jump on his back. His body was now full of adrenaline. In a roll reversal, a stream of fierce punches were thrown by Peter, leaving the attacker incapacitated. Peter then stumbled into the bathroom and found his wallet and driving license. He managed to unlock the door. 
His phone had no charge, so he banged on a neighbour's door for help. Peter explained what had happened and was offered a phone to call for help. There he contacted his mother and told her to pick him up. Scared of what he might have done to the man still lying unconscious on the floor of the flat, Peter felt it right to call the emergency services. Describing what had happened and how he thought he had been raped, the call to the police was made at 5.51am. Peter told the operator on the other end of the line, He's trapped me in his house for most of the night. I've had to, I know it's violent, but I've had to hit him a few times just to, to stop him from attacking me. I've had to. I've got blood on my hand if you want to see. I think he might be busted, so if you have to, you might have to phone an ambulance, because I've, I've had to hit him a few times to get him away from me. along with paramedics, officers from the Greater Manchester Police rushed to the flat. When they arrived at the property, they found a slightly built man in his mid-thirties with numerous head injuries. He had to be carried on a stretcher to an ambulance and was taken to Manchester Royal Infirmary. He was unable to communicate until the next day. The room where the attack took place was in disarray. A large amount of blood was found on the pillows, bedding, the floor and on the doors. Police were at first unsure of what exactly had happened. The man, known as Ray, appeared to be left with significant injuries. Peter's mother, who was later interviewed by a reporter for the Daily Mail, said when she arrived at the scene she saw her son surrounded by officers, illuminated by the blue lights of several police cars. She said, I could see his t-shirt was all pulled up around his neck, and I said to him, Is that your blood? Whose blood is that? That's when he said, I think he was trying to rape me. I just froze at that point. Peter was driven by his mother to Longsight Police Station where he hoped to explain what had happened. Despite his insistence that he was a rape victim, no testing to confirm his account of the events was undertaken, at least initially. Peter was asked if he was gay and had he been using dating apps to meet men. He was arrested on suspicion of grievous bodily harm. His clothes were seized and he was made to submit his DNA and provide fingerprints. He was held in a cell for the next 11 hours. I thought I might have killed him. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was using my instincts and adrenaline to survive, Peter later said in an interview with the Sunday Mirror. When he was released on bail, his mother was petrified her son would be charged with murder and would spend the rest of his life in prison. 
However, while it may have been difficult for the officers to reconcile what had happened without evidence, remarkably, Peter had in his possession a mobile phone. A white iPhone 4. It had been taken from the property and was not his. How exactly this device ended up in his pocket is nothing more than blind luck. It is believed that in the commotion he put the device in the pocket of his jeans, assuming it to be his. He does not remember doing so. While this iPhone did not contain the crucial evidence that backed up Peter's account of what happened in those early morning hours of June 2nd, it would be vital in an unprecedented prosecution. Reynard Sanaga was hospitalised. He was treated sympathetically. He slowly recovered, but his behaviour in the hospital began to raise suspicion. He asked that someone collect his phone from the flat. A black iPhone 6. He asked the nurse what had happened to him. He said, Have I been raped? The police were curious about what had been going on, so they asked Sanaga for the pin to unlock the phone they had found under his bed. Sanaga provided several combinations, but none of them worked. He eventually supplied the correct set of numbers when the officer was near his bed. Sanaga tried to seize the device but in his weakened state, he was unsuccessful. The reason why would quickly become obvious. When unlocked, the screen of the phone pictured Sanaga raping Peter. The charge of GBH was dropped, and Reynard Sanaga was arrested on suspicion of rape. It took the police over two days until they examined Peter for signs of a sexual attack. Detectives then went back to Sanaga's flat and found a vast amount of evidence on top of the phone they had been handed by Peter. It was clear he was not the first victim. There was additional footage of Sanaga raping or sexually assaulting unconscious men. Hundreds of hours of horrific footage... Around 800 videos had been recorded over the course of the last two and a half years. When out late at night in Manchester city centre... Reynard Sanaga looked for men who had had too much to drink. He would never approach a crowd, only lone individuals who were confused and vulnerable, unable to find their friends as the night wore on. 
Sanaga would at first strike up a friendly conversation, and after a time asked if they wanted to continue the party back at his flat, where they could listen to music. In another approach, he positioned himself as a good Samaritan. Still looking for drunk men who had perhaps been unwell or sick, this time he would ask if they were okay, offering a place where they could charge their phones or somewhere they could lay their head after a heavy night out drinking. Some had no money to get a taxi home. Sonaga did not go far stalking areas that surrounded Princess Street. Like Sanaga, the flat where he lived was unassuming. White walls, a few leather sofas, a small wooden table and chairs. Numerous magnets covered the fridge and a collection of shoes were piled up in the hallway. There was also a side table where next to his coffee capsules... Sonaga displayed shot glasses and bottles of strong spirits. The flat in Montana House was positioned only a short walk from the clubs and bars in central Manchester. Sonaga had been living there since 2011, after moving out of student accommodation. He had no permanent flatmates, although some friends stayed for a while unofficially. They witnessed Sanaga bringing back random men who on occasion became violent. They appeared to have consumed drugs, lashing out as they were disorientated, unsure of where they were. When he brought the men back to his flat, Sanaga would offer them alcohol, usually spirits or beer. Unknown to them, he would secretly lace the drink with a date-rape drug, believed to be GHB. When the men awoke, the survivors felt guilty, believing they had had too much to drink and passed out in a stranger's home. Sanaga convinced them they had no need to worry, and they didn't impose. He often showed concern for the headaches and confusion they felt. Some had been sick in the night. Some even felt that Sanaga had done them a favour. He told them he had picked them up off the street. Some recalled being unable to move, unsure of what was real and what was not. While theorised that his offending spanned more than a decade... The first of Reynard Sanaga's known crimes occurred during the early morning hours of New Year's Day 2015. A man in his early 20s had been out with friends at the Ritz nightclub on Whitworth Street West. He recalled ordering a drink at the bar, but could remember little else. After waking up disorientated in a flat he had not been in before, Then he was sick. Sanaga told him that after they had met and gone back to his flat, the man had passed out. The victim collected his belongings and left. Sanaga later sent a text message to a friend. It read, 
I didn't get my New Year's kiss, but I've had my first sex in 2015 already. In a recording Sanaga made of the attack, he raped the unconscious man twice. In circumstances much like the first, Sanaga's second attack occurred a month later. They increased in frequency. He committed rapes and sexual assaults on a weekly basis. In one instance captured on CCTV, Sanaga had managed to convince someone to come back to his flat within 60 seconds. If the victims who were heavily drugged awoke and made any effort to get up, he would hold them down. Most of the men could remember little of what happened, and the blackouts they experienced lasted several hours. They had no concept of time. In the minds of some of the survivors, they weren't in the flat for more than 20 minutes. When Sanaga had passed on his phone number, he received some text messages asking what had happened. Some men woke up undressed. Sanaga replied that he had simply offered them a place to stay, as he was concerned. He told them they had been sick on their clothes. Reynard Sanaga kept what was described as his trophies. These included some of the survivors' belongings, wallets, passports, driving license or watches. Sanaga also took pictures of the victim's identification and stored these along with other keepsakes while cataloguing the electronic address of the men's social media accounts. A prosecutor later likened these to Sanaga's top Trump's collection. In one instance, Sanaga took one of the victim's phones. This would be recovered some 18 months later. While most of the survivors could not recall what had happened, in one instance in 2017, the police received a report from a man who said they had been raped. They were confused and felt extremely unwell. Trying to piece together fragments of memory, he recalled waking up in a property and being in a room that almost resembled a hotel. Frustratingly, due to the potent drugs he had unknowingly consumed, he could not remember where he had been before he left. He vaguely recalled an Asian male he did not know. The Greater Manchester Police Force investigated the matter and forensically examined semen found in the victim's underwear. However, there was no match on the National DNA database. Officers looked into the possibility of the rape taking place in two local hotels. Still after footage from their cameras yielded no new clues, the investigation led them to a dead end. When the victims would wake up, 
Sanaga put on a friendly face. He told them they passed out. He invented stories of how they ended up in his flat, and most left unaware of what exactly had happened. Someone who had been to Sanaga's flat later publicly came forward, identifying himself as Michael Crompton. After a night out drinking with his friends in 2015, Crompton became separated in the hustle and bustle of the nightclub. Deciding he should get some food, around 4am he went to a local takeaway, asking if anyone had a phone charger. A man who introduced himself as Ray said he had one at his flat only a short distance away. Crompton, who was then 21, was highly inebriated and keen to get back in touch with his friends, so he accepted the offer. In his account printed in the Manchester Evening News, The Times and The Mirror, Crompton described what happened next. He recalled that he thought it odd a person offering him help seemed so sober at such an early hour. But due to the man's small stature, Crompton did not feel threatened. Once inside the two-bedroom flat and his phone was charged, Crompton was offered a drink by his new friend. Had Crompton made a different choice at that moment, his life may have been very different. He refused. The unimposing man then proposed that Crompton have a shot of alcohol. Confused as to why he was being asked again, Crompton said no. The man he knew as Ray said he was welcome to stay the night, but the offer was declined, and with his phone partially charged, Crompton sent a message to his friends and headed out the door. But before he left, he was told to take Ray's number. If he was out with his mates again, they were all welcome to come round to the flat for drinks or use it as a place to crash after a night out. Completely unaware of how close he came to being a victim of a sexual assault or rape, Crompton exchanged numbers with Ray and left. The pair later corresponded through WhatsApp discussing Ray joining Crompton and his friends on a night out. But that never materialised, and they did not see each other again. It was not until around four years later that Michael Crompton received a call from the Greater Manchester Police. They asked if he knew a man called Reynard Sanaga. I only knew him as Ray, Crompton would later say so I didn't recognise the name, but as soon as they showed me a picture of him, I recognised his face instantly. Realising how close he came, Crompton remarked, I couldn't believe it when I found out what Reynard had done. It's frightening to think how that could have so easily have been me. I'm just thankful I turned down the drink and his offer to stay over. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Reynard Sonaga appeared before Manchester Crown Court in four separate trials over the period of a year and a half. The first took place between June and July 2018. The second, April and May of the following year. The third, September to October. And the fourth, in December 2019. Each trial had to be prosecuted separately, and the respective charges could not be mentioned in the other. The survivors in each trial numbered between 10 to 13. Reporting restrictions were put in place and the media was continually monitored throughout the 18-month blackout 
so as to not prejudice any of the proceedings. Anyone who attended each trial was barred from discussing the case with anyone else. It was concluded it would be better to prosecute the case over separate trials, so the survivors could have the time to convey the trauma they had suffered. Also, such a large case with so many victims, it was important that the judge be able to more easily manage the proceedings. This also created trials that did not overwhelm jurors, even though there were a significant number of charges being prosecuted at once. In a statement later issued by CPS Deputy Chief Prosecutor Ian Rushton, he described how he did not want to see one, quote, massive conveyor belt trial in which the survivors just became a number and their experiences were not the focus. In total, Reynard Sonaga was accused of 159 sexual offences against 48 men, aged between 17 and 36. It was established from the footage that he had raped or sexually assaulted 195 victims. Half were students, some older, others younger. One victim was even studying at a public grammar school. During the investigation, police managed to identify some of the survivors as Sonaga had kept some of their belongings. Others had to be tracked down after reviewing the horrific footage. The police utilised facial recognition software and liaised with local universities. Police had to be extremely careful when seeking information on the victims of rape. Under the Sexual Offences Amendment Act 2000, victims of sexual offences have a lifelong right to anonymity so the police could not put up the faces of any men on posters or appeal material. When found, most of the men did not want to know the details of what happened to them. Along with the video recordings, Sonaga had also searched for the victims on social media, making what appeared to be some form of catalogue or collection. This assisted the police in identifying the victims in the footage. During the investigation, they considered whether Sonaga had killed some of his victims, although they could not conclusively link him to any unsolved deaths. The senior investigating officer for Operation Island, Detective Inspector Z.R. Lee, described the difficulties in the inquiry, saying it was like, quote, trying to piece together a million-piece jigsaw without the jigsaw cover. A consultant forensic toxicologist, Dr Simon Elliott, offered evidence in which he explained that the side effects of taking a date-rape drug, in this case GHB, was anterograde amnesia. The onset would be quick and could last well over six hours. Anyone who consumed the drug would struggle to form new memories of the events and would almost certainly pass out. The court was told that GHB 
or gamma-hydroxybutyrate could easily be purchased abroad from both Europe and China. It was alleged by the prosecution that Sanaga almost always approached white heterosexual men. The targets, as they were later described in the press, were, quote, macho men, above average height. And he wasn't targeting students. Sanaga approached men from all walks of life. Some survivors were serving in the army, others personal trainers or chefs. They could barely recall how they got to the flat in central Manchester, let alone remember what happened next. They all awoke disorientated and confused, face down on the floor. While the survivors could not recall what happened, Reynard Sanaga recorded almost all of the sexual attacks on mobile phones. When the multiple electronic devices Sanaga owned were analysed, evidence of the horrific events had to be catalogued. Estimated to be over three terabytes worth of data, the footage captured by Sanaga pictured graphic recordings of the unprotected rapes he committed. Some victims were raped more than once. The recordings were considerable in length. One ran for eight hours. The sexual attacks were filmed on two phones so Sanaga could later view them back at multiple angles. One on a dresser and the other he held in his hand. Footage pictured the men comatose, brought about by the drugs they had unknowingly consumed. Some men snored loudly. Others were still and silent, appearing almost as if they were dead. Some victims were sick. At first, Sanaga would put his finger in the victim's belly button to check if they would wake up. They seldom did. He then carried out the attack. Sanaga amassed an extensive collection of photos which pictured navels. In the footage, he would often lick the navel or nipples of the victim during the assault. In one clip, a mobile phone can be heard ringing at full volume, although the survivor still remained sedated and did not move. During an attack, one survivor who was partially conscious says no repeatedly, but they were all but immobilised, unable to move due to the effects of the drug. Their words are almost incoherent, but the voice assistant on their phone is activated. He says their name before telling them, I didn't get that. And the attack continued. Reynard Sanaga even shared some photos with his friends of the unconscious men he had just raped. His friends had no idea what had happened, entirely under the belief that they had been sent a picture of someone sleeping. Before the trials, Reynard Sanaga told his mother from prison that he saw the recordings he made as documentaries. Normawati Sanaga attended one of the earlier court hearings. However, being confronted with the sheer volume of evidence, she could not bring herself to attend any of the trials. 
Nomawati did, however, provide a character witness statement in defence of her son. The jurors in each trial had to watch the footage Sanaga recorded. Numerous statements were provided by the survivors who offered emotional accounts of finding out they had been raped and how it had left them devastated. One man had been raped and sexually assaulted seven times over the course of eight hours. He had no recollection of what had happened. It was not until the police came knocking on his door he would learn the truth. Another survivor was drugged repeatedly and assaulted for 15 hours. Many victims felt unable to speak to their families and friends about what had happened. The victim personal statements described feelings of shame and the long-term effects the attacks had. One survivor said he would have been dead had it not been for the support of his mother. It has been reported that one man did in fact try to take his own life. Some of the survivors did not wish to go to court and speak at the trials. Other men were totally convinced that it was a case of mistaken identity. They were confident they had never met Sanaga when shown a photo of him. It was only when presented with stills from the footage they came to a shocking and horrendous realisation. A father-to-be provided an account of how he had met Sanaga and described how proud he was. He produced an ultrasound photograph of the baby, which he showed to Sanaga. The man then could not remember what happened next. He was drugged and raped. Sanaga had offered some of the men a glass of water. They recalled the liquid having a slightly salty taste before they passed out and could remember nothing more. In one message to a friend, when questioned about the numerous pictures Sanaga had taken of what appeared to be men sleeping next to him, he replied, Take a sip of my secret poison. I'll make you fall in love. The survivors described the circumstances before the attack. Many viewed the evening like any other night out with friends, completely unaware that someone was watching them as they got more and more inebriated. Reynard Sanaga pleaded not guilty to every single charge he faced. This led to not only multiple trials, but the footage he recorded was played to a horrified jury, judge, and anyone in the public gallery. His defence counsel no doubt found it challenging to argue his client's case. Though only providing evidence in his defence during two of the four trials, Reynard Sanaga suggested that the men pictured in the recordings he made were pretending to be asleep. He alleged that the assaults and rapes were consensual. 
He also claimed that the reason why the men were never on his bed, instead laying on the floor, was simply because he did not want to make a mess. When pressed further by Prosecutor Ian Simkin QC during cross-examination, Sanaga said that his bed was squeaky. Simkin asked, Your case must be that someone who has never met you before allows you, within 15 or 20 minutes, to record yourself penetrating them. They have no idea who you are, but they allow you to keep the most intimate and in my submission the most grotesque photographs for yourself. Sonaga replied, I keep them for myself. There is no evidence that I uploaded them onto the internet. The defendant went on to explain why he thought his victims said they had been drugged and raped or sexually assaulted. Quote, It is not an easy thing for someone to come out as gay. That has probably influenced the way they want to answer it. They were probably scared that if, what if my girlfriend finds out I was lying and that night I was with a man? They were embarrassed, Sanaga concluded. Reynard Sanaga said he had not approached the men. It was the other way around. They had approached him. From a glass-encased dock, the expressions on Sonaga's face gave little away, even as he watched the survivors testify. He occasionally yawned, seeming more interested in fiddling with his hair which had grown to his shoulders since his incarceration. Even in the face of the recordings, and every single one of the survivors describing how they had no idea what had happened after being unwittingly drugged, Sanaga told the court that the men were only too happy to play along and be recorded while he fulfilled his fantasy. Sanaga claimed he told all of the men he had a sexual fantasy of raping a dead body. Prosecuting counsel Ian Simkin QC described this defence as preposterous. Simkin had unsuccessfully petitioned the court that Sonaga not be allowed to watch the footage he had captured when it was played to the jury. In the recordings, none of the victims appeared to be conscious. They made no indication that they were willingly providing consent. A sleeping person cannot legally provide consent. Hence, jurors had little option than to view the hours upon hours of horrendous rapes and assaults to confirm that the men were not just play-acting as Sonaga had alleged. In the witness box, Sonaga said, I make myself available all the time. I may look like a lady boy." and it seems very popular amongst curious men who are looking for a gay experience. Trying to argue that the rapes he had recorded were nothing more than a, quote, 50 shades of grey thing, Sonaga seemed convinced he was innocent. He never gave off any acknowledgement that he might have thought he had committed a crime. The amount of digital evidence the Crown had against Sonaga was vast. Several prosecutors had to work as a team as they pieced together the case. 
However, despite the hours upon hours of recordings, there was no evidence of drugs at Sonaga's flat. The deliberations at the trials were made quickly. The jury in each were unanimous on every count. Guilty. All jurors were offered counselling after the legal proceedings concluded. They were told they would never have to serve on a jury again. Before sentencing, victim personal statements written by the men that had been raped and sexually assaulted were read to the court. They described the lasting impact and how it has affected every facet of their lives. Some victims had lost jobs, been unable to continue education, turned to alcohol and even split up from their partners as they felt unable to communicate. They all had to undergo testing for sexually transmitted diseases. One survivor wrote, I want Sonaga to spend the rest of his life in prison. Not only for what he has done to me, but for what he has done to the other lads and the misery and stress he has caused them. I could recall the events of the evening the police were talking about but had no memory of any offences committed against me due to the complete lack of memory. I wish the worst for him. I want him to feel the pain and sufferance I have felt. He has destroyed a part of my life. I have never been in such a bad place in my life, and I don't know how to get out of it. I was diagnosed with severe depression and put on antidepressants. I also started counselling. Another survivor said, I genuinely thought he had helped me. How wrong could I be? The day I gave evidence was the hardest day of my life. I have a message to you, Sanaga. I'm not going to let you ruin my life. I'm going to fulfil my career plans and live a happy, content life. During the time between Sonaga's final attack and his conviction, Peter, the then young man who fought with his attacker, successfully found employment after finishing university. He has spoken anonymously to several media outlets about his ordeal. In an interview later published in the Telegraph newspaper, Peter said, I've had my day in court, and now he is stuck in strange ways while I'm out living my life. I'm still me. I'm getting on with my life. He shouldn't see the light of day ever again. He has never shown any remorse. He should die in prison. After hearing the victim personal statements, sentencing Reynard Sanaga in the final trial, the judge Suzanne Goddard QC 
said to the man who it was then alleged targeted almost 200 men. Because of your small stature and friendly approach, none felt in any way intimidated by you, and none had any idea of the sexual encounter you clearly had in mind for them. You are an evil serial sex predator who has preyed upon young men who came into the city centre wanting nothing more than a good night out with their friends. One of your victims described you as a monster. The scale and enormity of your offending confirm this as an accurate description. The judge remarked that it was unbelievable that not one of the survivors had been killed. She said, It was a risk you were prepared to ignore to satisfy your perverted desire to have sex with unconscious heterosexual men and film your activities. Reynard Sanaga seemed to revel in the process of multiple trials, and during the presentation of his recordings, he showed no remorse throughout whatsoever. Suzanne Goddard QC told Sanaga that his desire to record himself brought about his downfall. The judge said, It is ironic that were it not for the films that you took of your evil crimes, it seems that most of these offences would not have even been discovered, let alone prosecuted. Your actions show you as a dangerous individual with no sense of reality. Rarely, if ever, have the courts seen such a campaign of rape as this, covering so many victims over a prolonged period. Assessing the seriousness of the crimes and the options available for sentencing, the judge concluded, Whole life sentences are extremely rare and I understand that a whole-life order has never been made in a case other than one involving murder. Whilst these offences collectively and individually are of the utmost seriousness, and in my view did involve a risk to life, the features of torture and violence are absent, and do not involve death or lasting serious physical injury. The sole feature that would allow the court to contemplate the passing of a whole-life order would be the vast scale of your offending, which now involves 48 victims. This is, in my view, a borderline case, as described in the authorities, and as such I must therefore shrink back from passing a whole life order. In my judgment, you are a highly dangerous, cunning and deceitful individual who will never be safe to be released. But that is a matter for the parole board. After the first two trials, Sonaga was handed 88 concurrent life sentences with a minimum term of 20 years. But following two further trials, the time he was to serve behind bars was increased. Sonaga seemed unfazed by his impending punishment. Flanked by two guards of the court, he stood impassively, occasionally picking at the phrase of his knitted sweatshirt and barely looking up through a pair of black-rimmed glasses. For the totality of his crimes, 159 sexual offences 
which included 136 counts of rape, 13 counts of sexual assault, 8 counts of attempted rape, and 2 counts of assault by penetration, committed between January 2015 and June 2017. Reynard Sanaga was told he would spend at least 30 years behind bars. It's been harrowing for police and prosecutors to have to trawl through that mountain of stuff and painstakingly identify the offences, the victims, uh, and of course for them, they've had to not only discover the horrendous acts that have been perpetrated against them, but then um, Sonaga has taken delight in running every case to the court. We believe Reynard Sonaga was the most, is the most, UK's most prolific rapist. No one knew the 36-year-old academic was leading a sick double life. Sonaga's victims were lured back to a bedsit and drugged. But in fact, the drug wore off early on one man who woke up whilst being raped. He fought back, and when the police were called, they seized Sinaga's phone. They couldn't believe what they saw on it. The rapist had filmed each of his attacks. They found hundreds of hours of video. The total amount, I'm told, would fill 330 DVDs. So a painstaking job going through all those uh, dreadful recordings and picking out each of the individual offences. Reynard Sanaga is a depraved individual, a sexual predator who was offended, we believe, in Manchester for over 10 years. And he has taken advantage of young men in the city centre. This is the end of episode 33. To hear more about the life and crimes of Reynard Sanaga, please tune in next week. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Joy Isaba, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.